In spite of the uh, tremendous efforts of many people down through the ages, the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ is still the major holiday. Isn't that incredible? Um, In spite of all the efforts to secularize it, to uh, homogenize it, to... (laughs) You know, give it funny African names. Um, you know, it really does come down to that the, this is the, celebrates the day when the Christ was born. I'd like to um, talk some today, this, this morning, out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And... Uh, I'd like to start with the the first point in your outline. Jesus will save us from our sins. In Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 22, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed him to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I'd like to walk down through this passage and look at what it really means. We're so familiar with it, it's easy to miss what's actually being said here. In verse 18, Mary is with child before she and Joseph are married. Now, in our day, uh, that's kind of become almost commonplace. Uh, but still, it's it's not regarded as, as the most ideal way to do things. In their day, that would have even been received more negatively. This, this was not a, a happy occurrence in Jewish culture in New Testament times. Why would God do this? He likes just doing funny things, kind of a, a celestial prankster. I don't think so. Uh, Let me give you an example that that may help shed some light on this. What would be your reaction if Donald Trump chose to walk the mile and a half between the White House and the Capitol on foot to be inaugurated and then walk back on foot? Now, if it was just the Joe Average making that trip and you saw somebody out walking on the sidewalk there, along the, 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 that route down Pennsylvania Avenue. What would you think? Well, you'd think, hey, there's a guy walking down the sidewalk along with all the hundreds of others that are out there walking down the sidewalk. You really wouldn't think anything of it. But if it was Inauguration Day and you know anything about Washington, D.C., you would assume that if there's somebody out there walking down that sidewalk, it's because there's no parking. And the place is just incredibly crowded and you couldn't get a, ta- a, a taxi even if you held a $1,000 bill if they still made them, which they don't. That's what, that's what you would think is going on. But if Donald Trump 
decided to do that. And uh, I guess uh, George W. Bush actually did do that. But if Donald Trump were to decide to do that, you would not assume that the problem was parking or inability to get a car, right? U.S. government's so cheap they can't provide Donald Trump with a car. Unlikely. Now, so you might think, though, that Donald Trump wanted to put himself on the same level as the average guy on the street. Now, that's pretty believable when George W. Bush did it, but Donald Trump, I don't know, but maybe he would try it. And maybe he's got enough chuspaw to pull that off, right? Huspaw, I guess that's how you say that. You might think he's trying to show himself a man of the people, but you would be really unlikely to think that he couldn't afford the ride. Okay, it's the same with Jesus. There was no immorality involved. Rather, this was exactly the kind of miracle that people back then to mark the birth of a great king. The, 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 a miracle associated with the birth of a great king in that day was nothing unusual. Just, yeah, there's a hundred examples uh, that, that you could give. What does it say about this particular great king? It's that he has no human father. Now, we're talking about a culture in which kings were routinely referred to as the son of the gods. Even Caesars were referred to as the son of the gods. The pharaoh that, uh, that we read about getting drowned in the Red Sea not too long ago was referred to as being a son of the gods. Jesus' birth, Jesus' virgin birth, would have placed him ahead of all other kings. He was not a son of the, of the gods. He was the son of God. And that's how people back then would have taken it. They, they would not take this as um, an irregular birth. Um, it's, it's just a cultural thing. So, but verse 19, poor Joseph doesn't know what to make of this. Um, should he go ahead and marry this gal? He knows he hasn't been with her. Um, he hasn't had any great word from God up to this point as to what's going on. The poor guy is confused. The other thing you need to realize here about Joseph, and it says this in some of the other passages. Um, it says it in this passage as well. Um, it talks the, the, when the angel addresses him, he addresses him as Joseph, son of David. Uh, when when uh, when they went to Bethlehem, in another passage it says because Joseph was at the house in line of David. And if you read some of those genealogies, you realize he was a direct lineal descendant of King David. Okay, that's that's a great thing. That's way in the past. Maybe that doesn't mean so much these days. What does it mean in a culture where you have a ruler of the area there, a guy named Herod, who lured all of his family into a party in a stadium and sent in the troops and had them all slaughtered to prevent there being any possibility of there being uh, a rebellion against him by an heir to his throne. 
If you were a direct lineal descendant of David, might you tend to keep your head down in that kind of environment? <laughs> I would think so. So Joseph, here's Joseph. His, it's, um, you know, any son that he has is going to be an heir to King David. How is he taking this irregularity? He doesn't know what to do. And he's trying to figure out what something to do with this crazy situation is. And he says, okay, well, we just won't get married. I'll just put her away quietly. And that's the, the best. He, I mean, he's struggling. He doesn't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, would you assume that? I mean, it's a big deal when you go to the hospital and have a baby, right? But would you assume that going to the hospital and having a baby is is the is the absolute apex of God's intervention in the world? <laughs> Never occurred to me, and I'm a pretty arrogant guy. <laughs> so poor Joseph is just really trying to keep a low profile in this impossible situation. Seems like a reasonable guy to me. And then in verse 20, God intervenes with a dream that gave him and now us the real meaning of Jesus' birth. He tells God, God sends an angel to speak to him. He calls him son of David. Now, say you um, say, say you were a son of a famous nobleman somewhere. Um, you know, David may have lived about you know a thousand years before Christ. Say uh, say you were a direct lineal descendant of William the Conqueror of England. Oh, are you tricked? Some. There you go. I'll bet you that you will tell your children about that. I mean, you don't forget those kind of things. That's a big deal. Nobody forgets that. Now, I'm named William, but I'm not, so far as I know, a direct lineal descendant of William the Conqueror. And I'm very confident that I would know that. So he's addressed here as... Joseph, son of David. Okay, this is going to get your attention. This is going to get your attention. If somebody addresses you by this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, dynastic name. It's, uh, I'm sure that as he's going to, you know, walking down the streets of, of uh, ancient uh, Nazareth, that uh, people are saying, hey, son of David, you know. <laughs> I don't think that's happening. He tells him not to fear. He tells him the impossible. He tells him that this birth is from God. He tells us this is from God's spirit. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So if all this is not enough, God names Joseph's son Jesus and foretells that this baby will save his people from their sins. 
Okay, how can anyone's son do that? What is, how, how does he interpret that? What does that mean? And what does this name Jesus actually mean anyway? You will name him Jesus. It's a big deal that his name was Jesus. The, the Greek actually given in this passage is pronounced something like Aesus. Aesus. We think. Now, just so you know where we get Jesus from, when they took it into Latin, they dropped the extra vowels, which resulted in Aesus, but it's still pronounced the same. And then finally, it was changed in a, in a big revision that happened to the English language in the 1600s. And that leading I became a J. And Jesus became Jesus. Actually, if you go to the original King James Bible, the very first edition published in 1611, it still has the I, Aesus. And so actually the name Jesus is, you know, four or five hundred years old as far as common uses in the English language. But essentially, with just these adjustments to, to work into the English language, it's the same Jesus. The Jesus that we use today is the same as the Jesus used by first century Greek speakers. So where does this Greek Jesus come from? Well, it comes from an Aramaic name. Aramaic was the common language of the people in Palestine. It was uh, very closely related to Hebrew, but it was, uh, shall we say, as uh, as things like Spanish and French are related to Latin. There would be a close relationship there, but it was still a different language. And it comes from an Aramaic name, Yeshua. So that's that's what Jesus probably would have been called. Now, when they took it into Greek, okay, Greek doesn't have a letter Y, so they use I instead. And they also had to change the ending A to an S because Aramaic and Greek use different endings for different genders. And you can't take an, yeah, you can't, and they were, they were both very strongly gender driven languages, not so much in English, but very strongly in these languages. So they had to change that I to an S because you had, couldn't be having Jesus calling Jesiana, you know, or something like that. That's how we would interpret that sort of thing. So they had to change that as well. But the way that they would have pronounced it was Yeshua. There's still more. Yeshua isn't itself in a contracted form of Yehoshua. Yehoshua. And you've probably not heard many people called Yehoshua. But both Yehoshua and Yeshua are translated in the English Old Testament, as Joshua. And the meaning of Joshua is very clear in the Old Testament. It's Yahweh is salvation. Okay, so we get back to Joseph laying on his bed, trying to think this out, and this angel appears to him. And what the angel says, and you will name your son Yahweh is salvation. 
for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, this, I mean, can the announcement get any bigger than this? The other guys in the Old Testament that were named Joshua and there was some named Hoshea. That's just the save, the version of it that means just save. And all the prophecies connected with this basically prophesied a physical salvation of Israel from the enemies that surrounded them. Okay, what we're saying here is that Jesus is going to save people from something even more serious, which is their sin. How's Joseph feeling about this point? His world is rocking and reeling. He was confused about what to do before. Now he's just totally overwhelmed. Now he's totally overwhelmed. So Jesus will save us from our sins. And then let's go on in Matthew. Let's go on to Jesus is God with us. And in Matthew 18, verse 24 through, what do I have here, 25? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of God commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what's going on here is Matthew is giving us a little commentary on what that meant that the angel said, just to make sure we we get it. This is no longer what the angel is saying. This is Matthew's commentary on it. What does it mean that God is with us? Is it like, may the force be with you in Star Wars? (laughs) maybe, kind of. It's a quote from Isaiah, which gives us a much more specific meaning. It's actually from Isaiah 7 and 8, where God says he will be with his people to deliver them from great danger. And this quote just doesn't refer to that, though. It's... um, It refers to a theme that runs from one end of the Old Testament to the other, where God intervenes in history to save his people. And we've just studied that as we've been in Exodus. And we've seen how God took his people from being a slave people and has basically ripped the guts out of the Egyptian empire in order to free his people. That's a big deal, right? What this is saying is that what is happening with Jesus is a fulfillment of that. He, Jesus is the real thing that Moses and the Red Sea and all that was just the, uh, shall we say, the, the, um, the, the opening fanfare. And Jesus is the real thing. So it brings to mind all those things that that we've seen through the Old Testament. And and we can talk about other things that we, as as we've looked, we, as we look at the Old Testament, we look at the way that um, God saved his people through King David. We looked, we've looked at the way that um, 
he he brought us their people back from exile in uh, in Babylon. We've looked at Nehemiah and uh, and Ezra and passages like that. <clears throat> All of these things are being here fulfilled in Jesus. And when we say that the scriptures are all about Jesus, we're not trying to say that every passage says Jesus. What we're saying is that it all has pointed to this fulfillment. That this is the crux of the whole matter. That this is what it was really, it's really all been about. Let me put it this way. This is the biggest news ever delivered to anyone at anywhere at any time. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. The good news that the Savior has finally come. You notice that um, part of what the angel, part of the... um, Yeah. In terms of what the angel um, had commanded Joseph, the angel commanded Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And part of Joseph's response in verse 24 is he took his wife and knew her not till he had she had given birth to a son. Now, what's the point about Joseph taking Mary as his wife? These people would have understood that point big time. That legitimized Jesus. What does that mean? That made, it, made, it made Jesus heir to all the promises God had ever made through Moses and to the people of Israel. This makes him the legitimate, qualified heir of all of that. Kind of a big deal. So Jesus will save us from our sins. Jesus is God with us. And then finally, we are called to authentically represent God with us. So what does it mean that, that uh, how should we respond to this tremendous news? And, and we've, we've heard this news before. And in and telling it over and over again, it helps remind us of these things. How should we respond to this tremendous news? Well, being good Americans, we want a plan, right? We want to sit down and we want to come up with a plan and a strategy to get this out there. Let's raise some money. Let's put together an ad. Let's um, get on Facebook, you know, whatever. How should we respond? Should we quit our jobs and preach from street corners? Surely news this great responds a great, demands a great response. What God actually calls us to do is to represent him authentically. And authentically is a, is a word that we've, uh, that's become much more popular in the last few years. And it has to do with describing things honestly as they really are, how you really feel about them. It means from the heart. So, some of us may indeed need to quit our jobs 
And we probably do need to come up with some plans and maybe even a little strategy. But mainly, what we need to do is what He did. What did Jesus do? What did God actually call on Him to do? Well, first and foremost, He left His comfort zone and entered ours. There's a song about how He left His home. And I can't remember it right now, but... um, He left his comfort zone and entered ours. Can you imagine this? Being the ruler of of all creation. Being the actual creator. And coming down to being a baby and pooping in your diaper. (laughs) And you don't even have a nice crib, you know. While you're in this, uh, this horse trough. Or maybe it was a cow trough, even worse. Not a happy thought. He left his comfort zone. Why did he do that? Why did he agree to be humiliated like that? He simply and authentically represented God to our world. He incarnated God to us. What does it mean to incarnate? That just means to put on flesh, to become an actual human being who had to put up with things like pooping in his own diaper. Um, I'm, I'm getting to be a little bit older. And one of these days, I'm very confident, if I don't have the, uh, the privilege of going to Christ a little bit early, um, that, that I will reach that stage where somebody else has got to change my diaper. I don't look forward to that. Does anybody here look forward to that? Finally getting old enough where somebody else has to go. Yeah, I just think, let me out of here. I want out. (laughs) Why did God do that? The reason is so that we can understand Him. You know what? To think about relating to an Almighty God, He can do everything. He knows everything. There's nothing that surprises God. Have you ever been surprised? We live life from surprise to surprise, right? Um, sometimes plans we have and, and, and ideas that we have actually work out. And isn't that a delightful surprise? <laughs> God is never surprised. How do you understand a being like that? How do you understand a being that he speaks and it happens? It's like that cartoon where they have E equals MC squared and there's the physics professor working it out and then he puts a little comment in. And then God said, boom. Unbelievable power, unbelievable knowledge. We could never have understood him had he stayed up there on that throne. Not like we can understand him now. So just like he entered into our world, that's the main thing that we need to do. We need to enter into the world of those around us. We need to connect with them on the level that they understand. Now, sure, it's helpful to have some strategies, some plans and that sort of thing. But what we need to do is, is create authentic connections to people around us. People are not going to understand if we proclaim a God 
that entered their worlds to get to know to get to know them. If we stand like I'm standing up here on this pulpit, proclaiming this formally to you, we've got to have authentic relationships. We've got to enter into other people's worlds. The best, most accurate, and and I'm I'm all for accurate theology. Don't get me wrong about this. But the best and most accurate theological statement is not what's going to cut it in this situation. It takes somebody entering into their world and connecting with them on a very human level. It takes us being authentic. Now, some people attribute this statement to to Peter Drucker. And I don't know if he ever said it, but the statement is, Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And all I got to say is that would make me very hungry. <laughs> I would mean, eat strategy for breakfast. But what he's trying, what the statement is trying to say is that cultural culture wins over strategy every time. Culture wins over strategy every time. You know, some of you, I'm sure nobody in this room here actually remembers World War II. But most people remember the story of World War II, right? The U.S. did not want to get involved in that war. And you know what? It, it's for as much as many wars as the United States has been in. I'm not aware of any war that the United States particularly ever wanted to be in. It's not part of our culture. And um, so actually, when we're all aware of this, the United States was not well prepared for World War II. And everybody's familiar with what happened when there was Pearl Harbor and we got a humongous kick in the rear. Americans did what they do naturally, right? They started building and growing and they just went hog wild on this economic thing. And they created this economic flood of men and machines and equipment. And and it's really hard to imagine. But two and a half years after Pearl Harbor, where the U.S., the main strength of the American Pacific Fleet was sunk on the bottom of of Pearl Harbor. Two and a half years later, The United States launched the largest invasion, the largest fleet and invasion on the, that ever happened on the face of this earth, and that was D-Day. Absolutely humongous. What a lot of people don't realize is a week later, the U.S. launched the second largest invasion ever launched on the other side of the world, and then they invaded uh, Saipan and Guam and the Marianas Islands. The second largest. And it wasn't the second largest by much. It was almost the first largest. Now, who in their right minds would have planned such a thing? Who in their right minds would have planned it? How did such a thing ever happen? And it's just culture. And it's just Americans are really into working hard, building things, making, you know, that's kind of like what we're about. A lot of people think that the pilgrims claim for 
came to the United to the colonies uh, for religious freedom, and that was important to them. But more important was they could get a job, and that's really true. And the thing that has driven Americans for for a long, long time is economic progress. Get a job. And my point is that that part of our culture is not something that we planned and strategized. That's just something that comes out. And this thing about Jesus has to become such a part of our culture that it's not something that we're planning. It's that we're just doing it because it's who we are, who we have become. If we don't change our culture, all of our plans and strategies will fail. If representing God to people around us at every opportunity does not become normal for us, we will fail. God's plan will not fail, but we will not have a share in it. You can be an introvert, you can be an extrovert. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that whenever you connect with people around you, you do it authentically, honestly, you reach out, and you connect with them at the heart level. And, uh, you know, one illustration that I read in preparing for this was that when you uh, go to the grocery store, you should try to think ahead of how you're going to connect with the clerk. And that's fine. That's great. But actually, that clerk is real busy right at that moment, and is just mainly interested in getting you out of there. (laughs) What we really need to be doing is every time we connect with another human being, we purposefully attempt, at least, to relate authentically and at a heart level. And we look for opportunities to meet them at that level. I uh, meet every week with other pastors in the State College area in the City Church. And one of the other pastors has shared a story recently where his... um, His dog got loose. And it was a new neighborhood, and it was a big dog. Um, It was still a puppy, but it's the kind of puppy that is big and floppy. And Anyway, it got loose. It's out tearing up the neighbor's yards. And he's running around the, 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 the neighborhood trying to figure out what happened to his dog and hoping it hasn't ruined his relationships with all the neighbors. And he looks down the street, and here are some neighbors walking back up the street with his dog. He's like, phew, somebody caught him. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. And they're saying, well, we knew it had to be your dog because you're the new guy and, you know, nobody else. <laughs> and, you know, he said, oh, well, this is really great. This is really a wonderful neighborhood. I, I had no idea somebody would bring my dog back to me. And they said, oh, yeah, it is a great neighborhood. Let me tell you about this neighbor and that neighbor. And he, right there on the spot, he built a relationship with this guy and invited him to church, and the guy came. <laughs> now, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everything in life, every connection with people is an opportunity to connect with other people. Some enablers of cultural change. Uh, we need tools. And uh, the acronym for this is TOM. I apologize to Tom Hallman. But um, 
the the acronym is tools is, is tools opportunities and models we need tools things like the bridge the four spiritual laws we need opportunities now actually we have opportunities all the time we just need to start noticing them and then we need models and one of the things that we need to do in particular is start sharing with each other how we have connected with other people. And it's amazing. If you just have, if you hear about something happening a lot, you tend to just go do it. And um, ever since we've started talking about reaching out to our neighbors more, I become more and more conscious of my next door neighbor and what I need to do to relate to him. I like talking about him because he is challenging. <clears throat> and um, and I actually, I don't do all that well in relating to him. And it's very good for me to share my difficulties in relating. And that's, that's, what, uh, that's what I'm talking about, is it needs to be common for us in our conversation with each other, to talk about how we have related to others. And every, every Sunday, I'd like to see us sharing something about that. And sure, we might have visitors in the, in the congregation here. And if you're visiting today, I would just like to know you're really welcome, and we're delighted that you're here with us. And I want you to know that we're going to talk about how we welcome other people here. Uh, and, and it's not because you're a project, it's because you're people, and we want to include you in our lives. So these are some of the things that we can do. And then let me give you some specifics that we can do to connect with other people. Number one, risk vulnerability. Don't be afraid to talk about who you are. Don't talk about who you would like to be. Um, I, I recently saw a YouTube video of a TED Talk, and this gal starts out by reciting all of the wonderful things she's done in life, <laughs> and then and then she just stopped dead and said, okay, let me start over and tell you the truth. And actually, everything she said at the beginning of that talk was true. It's just it didn't, she didn't share those things that were really critical to her as a person. So she started over and she shared how she got fired from a job. She shared uh, all these other things that had happened in her life. And when she got done in that, you were so connected with her that you were in tears with her over those things. So risk vulnerability. Don't be afraid to talk about who you are. Don't talk about who you would like to be. Number two, share fears, failures, and hurts. We don't like doing that, do we? And I'm not talking about going ahead, going and, you know, being a sob sister and, and, you know, overwhelming people with that kind of thing. But I'm talking about being honest. Number three, listen without getting defensive or attacking, right? Somebody comes and they say, you know, we, we heard that you're, you're having church in this building down here again. I know it's, it's, it's been years since that building has been used. And I'm like, yeah, we just bought it, but it's been in continuous usage. That's actually the wrong thing to say at, this point, at that point. 
it comes across as defensive or atta even attacking. Well, haven't you noticed that we've gotten in here? No, they didn't. Number four, don't blame or shame. Number five, now this is the toughest one for me. When you make mistakes, apologize. <laughs> I feel like saying that I need to go back through my life and rerun the whole thing with apologizing for everything I've done. <laughs> That's number five. Number six, and this is tough. Focus on the person in front of you. Don't focus on what you're going to say next. Don't focus on what else is happening around you. Focus on that person. And number seven, and for busy Americans, this one is going to be absolute sacrilege. Invest your time in relationships. Put your time into relationships. So we've talked about how Jesus will save us from our sins. We've talked about how Jesus is God with us. And now I've talked about how he calls us based on that. We are called to repre authentically represent God with us. And I've given you some ideas as to how we can do that. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. And we are so grateful that you have drawn us to yourself. And uh, Father, the um, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing that you loved us so much. That you were willing to come for us, to die for us. To uh, draw us to yourself. Father we look to you. That you will continue your great work in us. Father help us to represent you authentically. To everyone that we're around. We pray in your son's name. Amen.